Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, folks. It is a beautiful day in the Panhandle, Florida, down here on the Emerald Coast. I mean, the Dolphins were out playing this morning, and it's 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 really spring in the air. You can't go wrong. We are in Chapter 17, The Little Red Book of Wisdom by Mark DeMoss. And this one is The Wisdom of Age, Seeking Out Older People. I find this interesting because so many times... People want to, I don't even know the word, I guess, just pitch aside, maybe that's the word, older people. But yet, as I studied Generation Y, the youngest generation out there, they don't they don't go and just go find information from their parents. As a matter of fact, they sometimes question their parents. But they do seek out the wisdom of their grandparents. And that's interesting. It goes back yesterday, we were talking about Proverbs, and one of the Proverbs says for a parent to leave their or for a person to leave their grandchildren an inheritance makes you wonder why it always skips that generation why would a grandparent leave their grandchildren an inheritance and why is the grandchildren go to grandparents for advice what is it about the in-between generation and it's been this way this isn't new obviously proverbs was written over three thousand years ago so obviously it's been this way for a while Maybe it's because children see the ins and outs of their parents and question their motives sometimes. Whatever the reason, Mark decided it was important enough to add it as a chapter. And I think that's pretty good. You know, that's that's the key to what we're trying to do. And that's what I want to do with these books is to give you wisdom where if you don't have grandparents or maybe even parents then you can at least start looking around to find people maybe that would be your grandparents' age see that's the kicker sometimes we don't look sometimes we don't pay attention and that's what I want today to really dig into really look at really feel Mark starts off this chapter, and today it's really stories. Listen to this. He says, The Ryder Cup is one of the greatest events of all sports. Every second year for four days, America's top dozen golfers face off against Europe's 12 best in a contest unique in golf for its team competition. Remember, golf is an individual sport. Now, when you're playing a round of golf, you'll play in a foursome or, or a twosome, something like that, but it's really an individual game of golf. Leading up to the 2006 Ryder Cup in Ireland, American team captain Tom Lehman reached outside of his peer group, his sport even, to consult with 95-year-old basketball coach John Wooten. John died in 2010. Great guy. He was just shy of his 100th birthday. Most people know Wooden as a basketball coach. He was the wizard of Westwood, and he guided UCLA to an unprecedented 10 natural championships. But what what I find unique about this, and Mark did too at the time, was Tom Lehman, or Lehman, however you say his word, reached out to a guy that a, 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 for outside his sport, outside his demographic, hadn't played basketball, I think, in 30 years, was 47 years older than Tom was. But he went to him for advice. 
the answer to why it goes back to something I said a minute ago. See, golf is an individualized sport. Basketball is about a team. And John Wooden, although he was known for winning basketball games, was most known because he put all of his energy and effort into his players. He could care less how many games they won. He wanted each of them to win individually and as a team. So that was the key. And when John sat down and and Tom started sharing to him what they were doing, here's what happened. He said, I was surprised to hear that the U.S. Ryder Cup contender contenders most often practiced alone. See, you can't be a team if you're practicing in the corner by yourself, if you're all on a different nine. You've got to be together. You've got to know each other's strengths, even in golf. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know about those players. Tom went on and he said, your character is who you are. Your reputation is who people think you are. Only you know your character, so focus on that. You can fool everyone else, but you can't fool yourself. See, when you're by yourself, people create their their idea of what your reputation is. When you're with people, you get to see what their character is really like, and they get to see what your character is really like. I just came back from the ANMP. Yearly, we're out there by ourselves building and, and doing, and people create the reputation. But when you get deep inside of conversations, you very quickly learn how each other think and what truly is of value. This is why I oftentimes seek out the advice of Dr. Keith Lagos, who could be my my dad, maybe my grandpa for that matter. Sometimes I wonder. But the wisdom that he has is second to none. So you need to seek out people who have already been there. Now, sometimes age can can be totally misconstrued because I have found people younger than I am that have countless or ageless maybe wisdom ahead of me. I think back to the story in the Bible of Jesus at age 12 going into the temple and mesmerizing the scholars. And yes, I know, people say, but Troy, he was the son of God. At 12 years old, he was a kid. But yet he was wise beyond his years. And although i got to read between the lines in this, I think it's because he more than likely listened to what was going on around him. But he was still a child enough to run off from his parents and hang out in the temple when they took off to go home. Okay, If you don't think he got his butt busted, or at least a good scolding, then you don't understand what parenting's all alike, especially from a mother who is scared to death about where her 12-year-old son is. you got to understand, he was born in a manger, so she wasn't like she was a pompous princess, although she should have been. But see, this isn't the only time. This is just one big story. What about bringing it down to home? Mark writes this, Far from the slink dunks of repeated national championships and notoriety is Lamar Lucy. He is a legend in a kinder general universe, a fixture at the school where Mark DeMoss's three kids go. Amazing. See, that right there, I I think, is even more interesting than not. 
Because Mark isn't just looking at the famous people. He's looking around. Who else is here? He said he's never coached a team, taught a class, served as headmaster, or worked in administration. Yet his influence on generations of children, however, would be tough to exaggerate. He said, when I first encountered Mr. Lucy, he was the head of the school's janitorial and transportation staff. But in recent years, he has served in the official capacity as director of encouragement, a job that he'd been doing all along. Seventy-eight years old, he has been at this school his whole, whole adult time. And from the time these kids get into school till the time they reach 25, Mr. Lucy telephones every student on his birthday with a congratulations and a personal prayer for the coming year. Usually the call is at 6.45 a.m. before they start their school day. Now you talk about giving some kid encouragement. But besides the local call, this gift of a man has telephoned across oceans as far as Iraq to encourage former schoolboys and schoolgirls now serving in the armed forces. His rare investment into developing lives ends not upon graduation, but once an alumnus is married or turns 25 when they begin to grow their own responsibility for future generations. Wow. What is it that you're doing? How are you taking a moment to impact the next generation? I can remember it was October of 2000 when I felt the calling on my heart to help the next generation. I was sitting in Catalyst on the back row as John Maxwell was sharing. And I started to get the little feel, but it wasn't until Dr. Howie Hendricks got up and did a did a speech or a teaching or whatever you want to call it on passing the baton that I realized part of what my calling was it had nothing to do with church. It had to do with a generation and helping a generation move on. That's the cool part. Now, do my kids listen to me all the time? Absolutely not. But I've made it a point to let them know, you may not have your grandparents all the time, so I want to make sure I'm there for you. I want to make sure that you can come to me with ants questions. That's why my kids like traveling. See, it's fun when you see this. Do they still reach outside of, my, their, of me? Absolutely they do. And they've been mentored by people far smarter than me. But like Mark, I really put an in investment into my children. See, we've got to look at this. This is something good. Mark goes on, he says, Anyone with a calendar and a phone list, I suppose, could dial birthday calls, but no one else could be Mr. Lucy. To a student struggling, he's a sympathetic ear over lunch. If you're in the hospital, he will sit with you and your family. He once drove unannounced to Florida to wait with parents and siblings of a young man in cancer surgery. Another time, the director of encouragement was the only non-family member to visit a young student's grandfather in the hospital. See, that's the power of character. Mark's sharing the reputation. But you think that sometimes it's probably hard and he's still doing it. Mr. Lucy's still out there working. I had a gentleman call me the other day and say, you know, you really have a passion to help people. Or 
or you wouldn't be doing your radio shows because the fun of doing the radio shows left a long time ago. It's like, yeah, we're right there. It's exciting to get up. It's exciting to do the shows, but it's an everyday thing. Every day searching for something new, something that can impact a person's life. Most of the time, never hearing from somebody that you've made an impact, just praying that you are. Mark says, 30 years my senior, Lamar Lucy teaches me there is no higher calling than that of a servant, and the lesson is not lost on my children. I've been so proud of Dalton the many times that he has launched a non-profit initiative to go out there and help people. Now his sister Cassie has taken up the mantle and has raised thousands of dollars in funds for people that could not raise it themselves. This is the magnitude. For the most part, my grandmas and grandpas passed away when I was young. I got to study my grandpa George. I got to study my grandpa Joe. I can I can still pull those memories up in my mind. My grandma Dooley, I just remember always with a smile on her face, but by the time I could really focus on what she was, she was bedridden, so I just got to hear the stories. My grandma Limley took a, a vested interest in me like she did all of her family. But she was a she was definitely a grit, a girl raised in the South. She was as tender as the day is long and mean as a snake. She took no gruff off of anybody and the most fond memory, and this is gonna really be weird, but the fondest memory I have of her was sitting next to her as she watched a black-and-white TV. And she had two cans, old coffee cans. One had cigarette butts in it, and the other one was where she had taken the unused tobacco out and, and put it in there. And you haven't smoked a cigarette until you have all these old cigarette butts with all these different kinds of tobacco, and she'd roll her own and smoke it. Tough old booger. Raised a tough family. You raised a convoluted, dysfunctional family. She did. You had one of two choices. You became tougher than them or you end up dying. So I didn't have really that that deep mentoring from grandparents. Grandpa Joe probably came the closest at the time. So if you don't have grandparents, go search some out. I've been searching out mentors all my life men and women older than I am. Mark shares another story about a controversial figure if you're in the faith-based movement, a man named Jerry Faldwell. Jerry founded the Virginia uh, Blue Ridge Mountain, was, was founded his church and his school, Liberty University, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mark says, after graduation for eight years, I worked closely for and with Jerry. Only his wife spent more time with him, and in some weeks that wasn't even true. Yes, he was controversial, but from thousands of hours with him in the rear of a plane in a quiet office or a hotel room in his home, or in his home, I came to see what he knew well, namely, the people mattered most. He said the Virginia preacher was notorious for being the last person to leave the building after a very long service. Matter of fact, every service. He would stay and shake hands and speak to everyone and anyone who wanted his ear. 
He did this even when he was preaching in another state, knowing the practice would delay his return home by an hour or two. He said throughout five decades of public ministry, Jerry conducted virtually every wedding and funeral service he was asked, often affiliating several ceremonies in a single day. He said nurses and doctors at Lynchburg's two hospitals knew him well from the rounds that he made several times a week for some 50 years. He said, Jerry also showed me that while people are important, family is more important. From my near total control of Jerry's calendar and schedule, I learned that nothing took priority over his wife, his daughter, his two sons, his wife's brother and his children, her sisters or parents. Birthdays, even grown-up family's birthday, trumped an invitation for Jerry to go to the White House or to appear on Nightline with Larry King Live. Really, to be anywhere else. He said, I learned about priorities from someone who had them in order. And those eight years in the company of a man, some three decades older than me, have made me a better husband and father. See, sometimes even the most controversial figures can teach us something. Bill Bright was another man that was Mark's mentor and somebody that I actually, my first volunteer position in a ministry was with Campus Crusades for Christ, 14 years old, between my 6th and 7th grade year, the little book, The Four Spiritual Laws, came out, and Bill went on a mission to contact everyone in the United States to at least give them the opportunity to know about Jesus Christ. I got to pick up the phone. I got to dial out. I learned how to use the telephone and how to deal with rejection at a very young age. Bill often stayed in our home, this is Mark talking, on his world travels at the helm of an organization him and his wife founded in 1951 on the campus of UCLA. By the time Bill passed away, and it was just a few years ago, Campus Crusade for Christ amounted to 27,000 full-time staff members serving in 190 countries most of them raising their own financial support. Two things have happened at Campus Crusades that never happened before. Number one, the film they created called Jesus is the most widely translated film in history in over a hundred or well over one thousand different languages and several billion people worldwide have watched it. The second thing they've done is their four spiritual laws has now been printed more than two billion times. I can remember giving the Lifetime Achievement Award to Bill Bright at Catalyst. He was on an oxygen machine. He was just months from dying. And yet as he spoke, you could have heard a pin drop. But it was what he did at the end when he pulled his oxygen down. And he said, I'd like for everyone, there was 15,000 of us approximately, I'd like for you to get down on your knees in front of your chair. He said, I'm going to stretch out my hand and I'm going to pray for you. A man in his last breath, a man that would, would literally was, was sleeping inside of an air dome, 
came outside of that air dome in southern Florida, traveled to Atlanta on an oxygen machine in a wheelchair, and he laid his hand out to pray. That's servant leadership. That's being, that's serving when other people might think it's not even wise to be that kind of servant. Bill wrote three letters to Mark in his last months alive, and the last letter was sent to Mark after he had died by Bill's son. Bill Bright, up until the day he passed away and the Lord took him home, was constantly pouring in to other people's lives. I hear people in the direct selling arena, the home business world, all the time saying, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Every time I hear somebody say, what's in it for me, I walk away. We do not do business together, period. Because I've got a firm belief that if you're always looking out for what's in it for you, you will never look out for what's in it for someone else. The famous Mark Yarnell wrote one of the best-selling books, Your First Year in Network Marketing. Wrote a new book. I'm going to have the opportunity to to review this book. He called me on the phone the other day. A friend of his had reached out to me and said, would you interview Mark? I said, I think that'd be a privilege. And I don't think Mark Yarnell believed me. We got done talking. He said, okay, I know what's in it for me. You're going to help me sell more books. What's in it for you? What 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 do you get out of this? I said, you selling more books? I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I said, it looked pretty cool on the resume that I interviewed the great Mark Yarnell. I mean, without a doubt. I said, Mark, it isn't about me. I'm not in business about me. I'm in business about you. If I can help you, if I can serve you, that's the key. People don't get that. In America, that's how we were born. Do you realize we were founded because people were looking out for other people? I'm not saying we're perfect. But that's why for decades, centuries, the world has looked to us to come help those that are underprivileged, those that can't help themselves. And maybe to some of you listening, that's why your business isn't growing. It's because somebody told you you got to look out for yourself. It's all about the dollar. Just talk to everybody and don't worry about those that don't stick. And I disagree with that. John Maxwell has taught me, you care about everybody. You expect the best from everybody. And when they decide that they don't expect the best from them, they will leave you. You will never have to leave them. And I firmly believe that. What are you doing to mentor the next generation? In 1980, Sam Brutiglino, I probably said that wrong. He was an NFL coach of the year. He had led the Cleveland Browns to the AFC Central Division Championship. But four short years later, after a 12-9 loss to the rival Cincinnati Bengals, he was shown the door. Like most coaches, Sam went through valleys and mountains on the field and off. But 18 years earlier, he had passed through his deepest valley. 
He and his wife, Barbara, and their four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Nancy, drove away at midnight from Sam's brother's house in Montreal to get back to summer camp in Maine where they were working. Early the next morning, Sam woke up somewhere off the road near Berlin, New Hampshire. He had fallen asleep at his wheel, and his little four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Nancy, was pinned under the wheel of their toppled VW, dead. Nothing, nothing else in his life would ever rival the pain, certainly not being fired from the Cleveland Browns. He said, after 11 years with various teams, six more with the Browns, three with the ABC Sports and ESPN, and as an analyst, the coach came to Liberty University to build a Division I football program, which is no easy task. Though separated by 30 years of living, we became fast friends, and I saw another great man in daily life. He said, when I saw Coach, he came to embody two worlds, excellence and class. He said, right down to the way that he interacted with critics who circled the football programs like moths circling floodlights. From dealing with drug problems among professional athletes, he knew something about developing character in young kids. Having moved some 20 times, being heralded as a savior and scorned for losing, Sam understood adversity. He knew that winners make plays and losers make excuses. See, it's all about character. And if you've got character, why aren't you giving it to the next generation? Why aren't you passing it down? Write it down on paper. Pass it to your kids. You know, pass it to whoever will listen, but get it out there. I look at our generation today, and people say we've lost a whole generation. They've fallen away from their faith. They've fallen away from from any guy, any kind of God, let alone the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when I see that, I think back to an ancient time, back to the book of Judges where all of a sudden the great Hebrew people had turned their back on God. And a whole generation was lost. In closing, Mark writes this. He says, Character, servanthood, the value of reading the entire Bible. People are what really matters. Thinking big and overcoming adversity. I learned much from the age of other people's age. So you can learn much by watching other people. Here's how Mark ends this. He says, after telling of a few of those figures in my life, maybe the best way to sum it up is this. Our culture's broken compass is fixed on youth. When it's good direction, you need to look up someone well down the right road. See, Mark doesn't talk much about his father-in-law up to this point. He may not even in the last chapters. But Art Williams taught me a lot. He was a controversial figure, like a lightning rod. One of the richest men to ever walk the the, the 20, 21st century. Started out as a school teacher, started out as a coach in southern Georgia. And when his dad passed away and his mom had to go to work just so that they could go to get an education... 
and he found out that there was a type of life insurance that had his dad had that life insurance, he would have had over $100,000, which would have been enough back then for his mom to stay home and continue to raise the kids. Art Williams went on a one-man crusade to share with middle America the fact that you could buy term and invest the difference be millions of dollars ahead. He took on, at that time, the world's most lucrative industry, the life insurance industry. He took on his critics. He took on death threats. He took on people blowing up his mailboxes, etc. And launched a company called the A.L. Williams Corporation. Some 35 years later, they're the world's largest life insurance sales force. They're the world's largest financial service company. They're the world's largest life insurance company based on face amount of insurance they have on the books. And I remember one story as I was sitting at a convention of a lady. She wasn't an agent. She was just a person. And her dream had been to give her husband his the one dream in his life, something in his bucket list, and he wanted to become a, a jumper. He wanted to jump out of an airplane at least once in his life. A couple, couple months before they'd gotten their life insurance in order, a, a representative from Primerica had come by, and her husband went up in that plane that day, and for whatever reason, his parachute didn't open. And he died, doing what he always wanted to do, but he died. And she shared the story about how an, an agent cared enough about them just to bring to them the fact that, hey, you could have more life insurance for less money in case something unexpected happened. He was older than she was, and she listened. There's somebody in your life trying to talk to you today. Think about that. Folks, thanks for hanging out with us tomorrow. Shut up and listen. Learn to listen more than you speak. Live life like it's an epic adventure. I'll see you at the top. Be back here with me tomorrow morning on RealMentorsRadio.com.